You're listening to Remote Possibilities, a podcast on the intersection of technology, society, and education, brought to you by MarketScale. Now here's your host, Kevin Hogan. Okay, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Remote Possibilities, the podcast that explores the promise and the perils of distance learning. I'm your host, Kevin Hogan, and I'm glad you found us. With me today is Dr. Sean Mahoney, Chief Product Officer for Illuminate Education. The, the company partners with educators to reach new levels of student performance, empowers teachers with data to serve the whole child. Uh, the solution brings together holistic data and collaborative instructional tools and puts them right in the hands of educators. As a result, Illuminate can visualize each student's progress, determine the right instructional or intervention strategy, and take the best next action moment by moment. More than 17 million students and 5,200 districts and schools across all 50 states rely on Illuminate. And, uh, Doctor, the reason I, I wanted to get you on as soon as, as I could uh, is a, as a result of some um, data that you released uh, last week, I believe. Is that correct? That is correct. And also want to thank you for taking your time uh, to come in and uh, join me to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you for hosting the conversations that are really about an educator journey in this really unique time. So thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, maybe, I mean, we might as well not beat around the bush here. Uh, the news, and I really wish I could speak with you about anything other than the pandemic, but here we are. Uh, and a lot of the results that I saw come from uh, out of your report are dispiriting, but uh, it, the reality is what it is. I'll, I'll give a couple uh, lowlights. Um, so the first is schools can expect significant losses in reading and math achievement going forward uh, in this year. Um, you say that the, the, the reading loss is greatest amongst uh, the younger kids, Um and, but there's also math learning loss uh, present across uh, both kindergarten to fifth grade. Um, and finally, the uh, and we want to touch upon this too, is the disparities in digital access really impacts how engaged students are, are during this remote learning process. Um, well, let's, let, let's start a little bit about how you got your data and, and how you began to collect this uh, during this strange time. Yeah, oh, ab absolutely. And, you know, you described the stage time rather well, um, though it can be dispiriting. I think one of the things that I'm heartened by is the the resiliency and the adaptability and the dedication of educators. So, you know, as you mentioned, to sort of state the obvious, um, you know, COVID-19 has greatly impacted education. And so starting with the, the massive school closures past spring and all of the, the different learning models that are in place as, you know, what was the traditional back to school has um, evolved. You know, we believe that educators actually can disrupt that learning loss and the predictions and accelerate growth for every student. So, you know, though some I think have been really focused on preventing learning loss, um, we actually believe that students can and will grow, um, especially with dedicated um, educators. And so, you know, whether we're talking to folks in New York City or Wood River Rural Schools in Nebraska, um, you know, the focus on mitigating that loss is really where we see our tools helping. So I, as you mentioned, our research and develop team recently completed the study, um, we call it COVID slide, research on learning loss and recommendations to close the gap. Um, and as you pointed out, the findings really confirm that students of all ages are going to start this school year um, behind where they would have after the typical summer breaks. 
So you often hear about the summer slide. Um, this is being referred to as the COVID slide, which is sort of exponentially compounding um, some of that data. And, and what we're really interested in and some of the key questions we explored um, with the K-12 educators was, did certain grade levels experience more pronounced learning loss than others? Um, would certain core subjects, as you pointed out, math, reading, have the same levels of learning loss or would one suffer more than the other? Um, exactly how far behind could we expect students to be when folks resume instruction? Um, how quickly do we expect students to catch up? So, you know, as, as you pointed out, what we saw was that reading learning loss is really greatest among K through two um, and at a projected rate of about to, you know, two months worth of learning loss. Um, we also see higher rates of learning loss across mathematics in grades K through five um, and at a projected rate there of up to four months of learning loss. And so, you know, the our approach here was not just to, to ask what we thought were important questions and try and get a sense of current state, but also look at recommendations that we could ground in an evidence-first approach. Um, and really, a lot of our work focuses on multi-tiered systems of support and the frameworks that schools are using. So, you know, we recognize that there would be more students with greater needs than in prior years. So, you know, things like fall screening in order to understand the biggest learning gaps for a student and then maximize and intensify sort of that tier one instruction is a key recommendation. Um, you know, the norms that are still um, in place are valid and important to look at because as indicators, they tell us that students have been, you know, under typical instructional circumstances. And then we can modify those adjustments and accommodations in the new context. What what was the time frame of the study? I mean, when when did you start to prepare for it? And even maybe I'll even ask it an earlier question that you know was it in mid March where you began to see that this what looked like would be a disruption uh, would become the mess that it is. Yeah, absolutely. So as you point out, almost immediately, um, we knew from our interaction with educators that they were going to be facing unprecedented. Um, situation. So, you know, our our first step actually from the moment the pandemic hit was to reach out to our partner districts and schools and see how we could support them. So for us, first, it was about the human connection. What are you facing? Um, how can we help? How can we support you? And understanding what their needs were then. Um, that absolutely informed our approach to say, okay, they are seeking information about, you know, what they should expect in terms of student learning trajectory, and more importantly, how they can take action, including using the tools that we have around assessment and you know screening and progress monitoring and socio-emotional behavioral supports, and apply those in a way in the new context. And so, you know, we immediately began the research um, as well as you know, very specific supports like webinars and resource tools to help them understand how to make these shifts to the remote learning environment. So I've been having many conversations with both um, executives such as yourself, as well as school district uh, administration leaders uh, in, in their response to the pandemic. And one kind of general theme that I'm, I'm, I'm pulling out is that and maybe it's obvious, uh, I've been called Captain Obvious, there are schools that have already begun a journey to be uh, using online learning uh, or remote learning, whatever the description is, and those that have not, and that a lot of districts, and I would assume the ones that, that you work with, with, with FastBridge, already kind of um, were on a path. So maybe we're already a, a maybe say a bit more progressive than your average district. Is, is that an accurate assessment? And, and, and because of that, 
Um, do they have insights that they can help share with other districts? Yeah, it's a, a great question. Um, I, I love Captain Obvious, actually, because obvious <laughs> means that it's it's explicit. And, you know, I think one of our jobs um, is to bring clarity, especially in times of cacophony or chaos. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> and and certainly we, we do think that, um, you know, our FastBridge customers and FastBridge is our universal screening and progress monitoring tool. So it's the, the thing that allows you to sort of almost like a vision test, say, well, where are you right now? Um, and then monitor progress over time, right? Are these kiddos, you know, learning the number of words that their peers have by this point. Um, and, and certainly those folks have, I would say, uh, a predisposition and an understanding of online learning environments, remote learning environments, and how you really take advantage of the, you know, what I talk about as the affordances and, um, you know, disadvantages of learning in a technology enhanced environment. You have to understand really the, the complexities and the affordances and limitations. Um, that said, you know, those folks are facing the same types of you know, really tectonic shifts in daily logistics that everyone else is. So to be clear, um, you know, we sort of see this hierarchy of needs and first order priorities. So when you are now, you know, taking the temperature of students outside the building or checking for masks or, you know, reminding folks about hugging policies, that's not typical. So um, certainly when it, it comes to the instructional models, we have very sophisticated users who are asking questions about assessment. Um, so, for instance, if you think about, um, you know, socio-emotional behavioral aspects of what schools and students are facing right now, um, you know, they're experiencing trauma and anxiety in ways that we haven't seen before. Um, and we're still expecting learning to happen in those environments. So, you know, our conversations with clients and prospective clients are really about, you know, supporting challenges academically, socially, behaviorally, emotionally. Um, and for us, that means, you know, thinking about the tools and also how you adapt them to be even more effective. So, um, you know, how do you screen and progress monitor for social emotional needs like, um, you know, getting along with peers in times of stress or, you know, demonstrating self-control or even something as basic as paying attention. So um, I would say absolutely, you know, folks are, savvy, they're dedicated, they're adept at using tools, and yet, um, you know, everyone's struggling with how to do that in a way that also attends to the whole child. And, you know, this is a place where, you know, we feel particularly proud of the resources that we have to, to help them understand and measure how the programming is working um, and getting desired outcomes, even in these unique times. Yeah, it's one trend that I've noticed in my conversations that Many ed tech companies, curriculum companies who, you know, hey, we focus on math. That's what we do, right? Or we, we focus on reading. That's what we do. Are now suddenly um, looking at social emotional aspects of their of their curriculum that they never thought of before. And, and the vice versa. So social emotional learning companies and maybe that always kind of had a focus on maybe uh, special education or, uh, you know, on, on counseling kind of always kind of considered extracurricular is now very much important uh, for not only the students, but the teachers and the parents. 
Yeah, you know, parents are a key element. So first of all, I, I, I've seen the same thing. We noticed the same thing in the market, which is regardless of sort of what dimension you were focused on, whether it was, you know, a particular academic subject or a you know, social or emotional dimension of learning, um, you know, how the mind works and how learning happens is pretty complex. And it's our belief that when you look at the, the factors that influence learning holistically, that you're able to better support the whole child. And supporting the whole child means the home and family and community environment. And so, you know, that that's a really interesting place where we've made some very distinct, um, you know, pivots, updates to our products, things like in New York City, um, messaging tools, where we saw huge upsurges initially in the spring around school closures, where schools were trying to communicate with parents um, in new ways, in more meaningful ways, given the, you know, changing environment. And so at absolutely, we think of parents as an extension and a critical part of the ecosystem where things like communication and collaboration and, and real-time tooling are key. You know, when you've got three kids at home, you're working full-time and trying to help them log into a Zoom session for, you know, whether it's an algebra class or a, a third grade lesson, um, you know, that communication with schools that allows for both information, um, but also assessment and actionable insights coming back. Like, here's how things are going after this week. It, it's so important. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the parent angle, as I think of it from a, a journalist point of view, I mean, I've covered education technology for 15 years. And the number of times I wrote about the parent angle to any of this um, was probably, I could count on one hand. Um, and now which is we're all realizing that parents are the ultimate teaching assistants or should be uh and they have forced to be uh that now uh but going forward it really should be a more important part of the dynamic right yeah and i you know i can only imagine the the variety of of topics that you've encountered in that 15 years in those conversations uh but as you point out with parents i think it, there's always been an acknowledgement that the home school community partnership is essential. Um, what we know now is that it, it's also logistically um, something that schools have to track. So, for example, you know we know that schools are going to experience you know differences in their scheduling, um, in how they assign devices for students. You mentioned access earlier. Those devices are a critical component of access and you know, providing an equitable experience for students. And so, you know, some of the work that we've been doing is around how we can help schools and districts actually collect data related to some of those, you know, perhaps more unique data sets, if you will. Um, to whom did we assign a device on which day? Um, and and looking at how in a remote setting that information actually helps them um, through a dashboard communicate with not just the educators but the parents so that they can track progress towards goals you know it, it helps them with things like attendance for instance in a remote environment something that used to be fairly straightforward that gets a bit more complex one of the top uh, points in your report uh, it's actually the top point uh, that I'm looking at here uh, talks about how technology gaps matter disparities in digital access impact how engaged students are during remote learning. And I think that's a really important point to to go back how we were talking about how we have the privilege of talking to districts that get it, right? That are that are progressive with technology that maybe they have really savvy leaders. I found in the spring that even those districts um, kind of were hard hit with the realization that a 
portions of their student population don't have access to the internet. And I know for a lot of district leaders, that was like saying that students don't have access to running water. And it just kind of really hit them hard in the head to the point where um, they were out in their cars getting kids set up with Khajiit hotspots. Um, did you find that with, with your with your districts who are or clients as well? Yeah, you know, we, we work with schools that are in urban settings, in suburban settings, in rural settings. Um, you know, as you talked about, you know, they can thought of this as almost running water. The connectivity issue is a basic utility right now um, in education. And so, you know, certainly we've talked with um, educators, schools and districts who are doing things like taking a school bus and using that as a mobile hotspot. Um, so it really does depend on context. And yet, you know, again, when we think about that hierarchy of needs, um, making sure that access is available so that um, you know students and teachers can connect in meaningful ways is, again, sort of a basic, a fundamental. Yeah. Any um, other insights uh, in regards to when you were looking at the data itself um, that schools, that educators can take away? Any any, any surprises, first of all? Um, that's a great question. I think, you know, if one of the things that your podcast does, much like I think research um, does, is enable a conversation about best practices, findings. Um, and, you know, one of the things that in my years in education I've found is that um, schools and districts are excellent about picking up the phone and telling, asking the question, like, what's working for you? And more importantly, why? And so I think some of the things that I would highlight really do go back to that notion of screening and progress monitoring. So, you know, when you're thinking about learning loss and preventing learning loss, you know, whether it's in Arizona or Massachusetts or Florida, and you're, you know, contending with very basic standards and skills, the, the idea of focusing on key metrics that you as educators are collectively paying attention to as you progress monitor is key. And so this notion of growth and how much student growth we're making based on very specific learning objectives, I think is a, a great way for educators to galvanize around the learning moments. Um, I think a, another key insight is as simple as it sounds, so maybe now I'll be Captain Obvious, is to say, <laughs> uh, you know, spend more time on reading and math. Um, and, and what that means is in K-3 classrooms, the risk of learning loss is more pronounced in those grades. And so, um, you know, it'll be necessary to spend additional time helping students make up for that lack of instruction in reading and math that's occurred as a result of COVID-19. Now, there, you know, there's also a, a group of folks in, in conversations, I've been on some panels and things like that, um, who talk about how the data isn't important and that because of this pandemic, um, we can now kind of return to this. Uh, and they'll use the, that whole child analogy as well, but just like, we're going to focus on the basics here and not worry about all the analytics Right, because the analytics have maybe stripped some of the soul away from education. What What do you say to those folks? Yeah, I I love this conversation. Um, you know, I had a, a mentor and a colleague who talked about data as records of experience, 
And and the reason I like that is because it's not just about soulless analytics. It's about deeply understanding, yes, sometimes with numbers, but also with stories and also with educator insights and parent insights. I mean, a parent having the ability to respond to a survey about their child's level of anxiety is a very real thing that to my mind is data. It's a record of experience. And it's not the data that's important. In fact, one of the worst things in education is data without insight or actionability. And so I, I think you can honor the whole child by looking holistically at records of experience. Um, and that's really what enables you to say, you know, how is this child progressing and what are the factors influencing their heart and mind in a way that, again, it's about experience on their learning journey, not just a number on a page or a dashboard. And in fact, um, you know, we've actually tried to bring that to life in our software. So we literally have a page called Students 3D um, in our EduClimber product, which is a, a tool for workflow and visualization, where you can see the child's photo there. Um, because for us, it is about the child. So it's coming back to the individual student that you're helping, um, not just a set of numbers on a dashboard. Yeah, and that's a part of the reason I'm excited about a lot of the uh, advancements in artificial intelligence, right? I mean, because eventually we won't be looking under the hood at the numbers. You'll just be having an interaction that's kind of set in the concrete of the numbers. Yeah, and you know, your point there when you were talking about interaction really made me think about the the moment to moment interactions that happen in teaching and learning. So, you know, the the truth is that you know, assessment often gets I think kind of um a a bad name in education or it can because it can be viewed as you know, sort of a moment in time static measure of what a child knows, especially in high stakes assessment situations. And yet the truth is teachers and certainly great teachers have always checked for understanding. Um, and so that happens throughout the instructional cycle. And so the, the interaction that's happening from moment to moment, um, to my mind, are those records of experience. And to the extent that you can embed those checks for understanding um, in the ongoing process of engagement with a child, you actually have the ability to, you know, weave in things like learning analytics, yes, but you also have the ability to say to the child, how are you doing? What are you struggling with? Tell me a little bit about, you know, what's exciting you. And those two things, again, together provide this holistic view of maybe what's typically invisible in someone's mind as they're learning. Yeah. If you don't mind me getting a little more uh, big picture and ask you your thoughts on the transitions when it comes to assessment in general, I mean, not just K-12, but SATs and standardized testing in general. Uh, and uh, there, are, there are a number of advocates now saying this is the moment in which we should completely reconstruct um, our assessment systems to focus on micro-credentials and, and mastery-based uh, sort of assessment tools. Where do you in, uh, sit in, in that conversation? Yeah, so I, I think from an Illuminate perspective, you've definitely heard a consistent theme from me, which is we see the relationship between the teacher and the learner throughout the life cycle of 
let's call it an objective. So it could be a daily lesson, whether it's adding two digit numbers, or it could be a unit of instruction, right? Like assessing author's bias as really the key to success um, and growth over time. And when you pair that with the ability to screen and progress monitor in an evidence first way, you're able to look at growth um, in new and very exciting ways. And so, you know, I have a, a great deal of respect for folks that are looking deeply at policy and education and, um, you know, looking at policy shifts that would be meaningful. To my mind, the the question that we pursue and what we're trying to support is really an equitable way to provide frameworks regardless of your learning context. So as you pointed out, so many schools and districts have very different learning models. They have very different tools. They have very different access issues. And so, you know, our role is really to provide the tools that adapt to flexible environments and enable choice. I mean, so in that regard, we've taken a very um, deliberate and I was going to say open approach, but that was um, almost too much of a pun, an open approach to our technology because we work with schools and districts that use a variety of different curriculum um, to support instruction. And we want them to be able to integrate that data with formative assessment data and the screening data. Um, you know, so when you think about, you know, do we completely divest in the current system? How large would those tectonic shifts be? I, I think it's an important conversation. I certainly think that there are drivers right now that, you know, force us as educators to look at where we've been and where we're going. And yet I will always bring it back to the teaching and learning moment. Um, a great teacher and a curious and interested child can do great things together. Actually, all I'm trying to do is figure out if, if my son needs to take the SAT or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, we could have a sidebar conversation about that, um, whether it's SAT or ACT. And, you know, th those tools, you know, historically, if you think about the questions they've helped us answer, it's really about college readiness. Um, you know, you hear a lot more about career readiness, for example. Um, you know, so at I can only imagine the, the questions you're facing as a parent. Um, those are the same questions that other folks are facing. And yet to me, again, at the core, it's how ready is my child to take on this new experience, whatever that might be, um, in a way that, you know, demonstrates to whatever, you know, institution or community they're going to be working with, that they're there and ready to engage with a, a curious mind for the next step in their in their life journey. Well, UCLA and, and Berkeley don't care about SATs anymore, but I told them we can't afford that out of state anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> it's all on. about context. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, let me ask you this. We're, we're starting to run out of time, and I really appreciate uh, all the insights here. What would you recommend educators do with your results? Um, what you've seen them. You've chewed through them. We, we, we've talked about the, the you know the, the finer points, but is is there a takeaway that you hope that folks can take from from the work that you've done, which is has been um, terrific, and uh, you know people appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. Um, I think two things come to mind. So one is. I think as you, folks are trying to assess what that summer slide or COVID slide might be, um, if in the process of screening, folks find that a student is well below the norm, um, don't rush 
to call the school psychologist first and only to get a special education evaluation, right? Instead, um, front load an intervention and look at things like progress monitoring as a way to quickly and efficiently gather data first. Um, so the likelihood is that, you know, students who are in tier two or tier three, which is typically the, I need small group instruction or I need individualized intervention, make gains pretty quickly with a focus on the areas where they need support. And then what you'll know is that those deficits are more likely due to the lack of instruction um, than a disability. And so I would say that it's it's even more critical now um, to conduct you know a lot of the progress monitoring and screening assessments um, required for things like comprehension evaluation and and to do that with a tool that is appropriate and reliable and valid um, so that folks aren't overcorrecting. Um, and then the the second thing that I would say and we would recommend is that you know as educators are focusing on mitigating the learning loss. Um, you know, we know that they need the right tools to identify the needs. And so looking at the data and talking with a variety of stakeholders, whether that's the parents or fellow colleagues um, to support their effort is key. So I think, you know, educators giving themselves the grace to, to look at the data and really, you know, interrogate the data and look at it holistically um, is essential right now. Yeah, that's definitely another um, positive that I've pulled out of this, that uh, both people in the industry and people within school districts themselves and, and people, uh, parents speaking with administrators and uh, all the dynamics, people certainly seem to have an element of empathy that, that might not have been there before um, March 13th of this year. Um, empathy, I think, is is key to, to human interaction and certainly in complex times where we're all under pressure and stress and trying to figure out things in, in new ways. Yeah. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to the listeners out there. I hope you tune in to another episode of Remote Possibilities soon. 